Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon I delivered on the book of Acts. I hope you enjoy. I explained to them that the command to love is something that we do because that's what God is. God is love. And as we love one another, then we are making God known. And in marriage, it's another opportunity for us to love and to love one another and to make God known. And that the command to be one, as, we, as the two shall become one flesh in marriage, is also an opportunity to make God known because God is one. So when we love and when we're one, we make God known. And the reality, of course, this is a command for the church too, right? This is, this is the greatest commandment that we have as Christians is to love one another. And of course, and we do so by being one, as we've been singing about and reading about and looking at uh, throughout the course of this morning. But of course, it's hard. Why? Because we're different. And we discussed this a number of weeks back when we look at the book of Acts and we see that the church in Jerusalem, it was easy in the Old Testament world before Jesus because everybody was Jewish. They all ate the same foods, they drank the same drinks, they wore the same clothes, they went to the same festivities, they didn't do this on the Sabbath, and they did do that on the Sabbath. It it was simply a cultural thing. It was simply much easier to be one. But as soon as the church comes along, and now people from Rome, and from Spain, and from North Africa, and from Syria, and from Jerusalem, and they're all getting together, and they're different. And it makes it difficult. Acts chapter 1 begins with the command of Jesus to to his disciples in verse 8. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. From the very beginning of the book of Acts, the disciples are told that we're going to do things differently than the way it worked in the Old Testament world. The time before Jesus, what we call the Old Testament, the books of Genesis through Malachi, we call the Old Testament, The the nation of Israel was to be a light unto the nations. They were supposed to to be obedient to God, and the nations would see how great they are, and the nations would flow to Israel. But now with Jesus, he comes along and says, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. I want you to go to the nations. I want you to obey my commands and be a light, but I want you to go out to them and be a light to them. You're going to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What's interesting when you read the book of Acts is this. They don't go. They don't do this. Chapter 2, Jerusalem. Chapter 3, Jerusalem. Chapter 4, Jerusalem. Chapter 5, Jerusalem. Chapter 6, Jerusalem. Chapter 7, Jerusalem. They stay. What caused them to go? Let's continue on. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In those days, the number of disciples was increasing. And the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, Hellenistic Jews mean Jews from outside of Judea and Jerusalem. Hellenistic Jews means they speak Greek. Hellenistic Jews means they they kind of have, have adopted the Greek culture. Hebraic Jews means they're Jews from Jerusalem and they speak Aramaic. And it's probably pretty easy to see what's going on. And we have to read a a little bit between the lines because Luke doesn't tell us this. But most likely, the Hebraic Jews thought themselves superior. We speak Aramaic. That's the language. It's the uh, Hebrew and Aramaic are the same alphabet, the same letters. It's basically the same language with some slight differences. 
We speak the language of the Old Testament and you guys speak Greek. We, we dress like, like, like Jews have always dressed and you guys speak like, dress like the Romans do. And, and most likely there's a superiority and the Hellenistic Jews were not getting food to their widows. So Acts 6 goes on to explain. They come to the disciples and say, hey, look, our widows aren't getting any food. They're, not being, they're, they're being overlooked. Uh, all, all the money's going to the Hebraic Jews. And the disciples say, you know what? Here's, re- here's reality. Why don't you choose seven disciples from amongst yourselves? They call, they're called deacons. And this is where the office of deacon comes from. You choose seven deacons and let them take care of the problem. We're too busy preaching the gospel of Jesus to the nations, or at least to Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, we're too busy with that and we can't be bogged down with these things. And so they, they choose seven deacons. And they solve the problem. Now, Luke passes over it. I, I think Luke tells us the story in Acts 6 because Luke wants to tell us where the office of deacon came from and how it arose. But we probably can assume that it didn't just go away that simply. There was tensions, there was difficulties. Acts chapter 7 then tells the story of a man named Stephen, one of those seven deacons. And Stephen preaches a sermon in Acts 7 to the Jews in Jerusalem and explains, hey, you guys are missing something. God has appeared to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And the whole base of the sermon was the Jews in Jerusalem were upset at the Christians because they were preaching that the temple is no longer important. And Stephen says, look, the temple's never been of that great importance. After all, God appeared to Abraham and God appeared to Moses before there was a temple. God doesn't need a temple. But then he built a temple. But even when Solomon built a temple, he says, God doesn't dwell on houses made by human hands. And then Jesus has come along to us and he is the temple of God. And you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Now, not really a good way to make friends amongst the Jewish people. Because you just said, you killed him. And so, some of you know the story. They drag Stephen outside the city, throw him into a pit, turn him face upright so he can face his accusers, and they begin stoning him. And Stephen's killed. And according to the story in the book of Acts, a man that appeared to be in charge of the whole thing was a man named Saul, whom we know of as Paul. And chapter 8 of the book of Acts begins this way. It says, And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Folks, this is what they were supposed to be doing from the beginning. They didn't leave Jerusalem. They were supposed to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they didn't go. So apparently God says, I'll make you go. I'll bring a persecution and allow it to happen. And they begin to scatter throughout the world as a result of a persecution. So, Jerusalem, right at the northern part of the Dead Sea to the west. All right. Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and then the ends of the world. But it's a persecution that causes them to flee. Now, one of the reasons why we probably expect that they were having troubles with this, and we're going to see this in the story in Acts chapter 10 in just a moment, is because they were hesitant about going to those Gentiles. Now, the word Gentile means somebody not Jewish. The Greek word Gentile is actually the word for the nations. It just means, it's ethnos. It means nations. But for the Jews, it's kind of a racial distinction. There's us and there's them. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. There's Israelites and there's the nations. And there, we're not going to them. They can come to us. Now, what's ironic about that is that Jesus himself, according to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, had already taking care of the problem. 
Mark 7, verse 14. He called the crowd to him again, and they began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand that there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 17. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it doesn't go into his heart, but his stomach, and it's eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus, while he was alive, before his crucifixion, several years before Acts 9 and Acts 10 take place, Jesus has said all foods are clean. Now, if all foods are clean... That makes the Gentiles clean. Because by definition for Jewish people, Gentiles are unclean because they eat unclean foods. They they might do other things that make them unclean as well, but absolutely all Gentiles eat pork or eat, eat foods forbidden in the Jewish law. And they are by very nature unclean. And Jesus said, guess what? All foods are clean. Therefore, all Gentiles are clean. No problem. And the disciples, Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, will not go to the Gentiles. Acts 8, a persecution arises, and now they're forced to go out. But they still are hesitant about going to the Gentiles. Acts 10, we'll pick it up here. And we saw a little bit of the video that kind of gave us the background of this. Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, which is the Roman capital of Judea, of, of, the, of this area. Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, meaning in charge of 100 soldiers, or more than that, in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Verse 5. Now send the men to Joppa, which is modern-day Jaffa, which is about 20, 30 miles, maybe uh, more, uh, south of Caesarea on the coast. Send to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him and had gone, Cornelius (coughs) Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on his roof to pray. Verse 10, Peter became hungry and he wanted something to eat. While the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now at this moment, I would stop and say, Peter, Jesus already said all foods are clean. Verse 15, the voice spoke to him a second time. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. Three times this happened. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was also known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Verse 20. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. 
Peter went down and said to the men, I'm, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, well, we've come from Cornelius, the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man. He's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask for you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along also. Now, Peter has, at this point, invited them into his house. That's okay. You see, if you're Jewish, you're not allowed to eat with a Gentile because Gentiles are unclean. You're also not allowed to enter a Gentile's home because the Gentile's home has unclean food in it, and therefore the home is unclean. But you can maybe, if you're careful, allow them to come into your house. I mean, your house is clean, and if you have a meal with him, it's going to be clean food, and he's, just, he's going to be eating good stuff, no problems at all. So Peter's like, okay, an angel told me you're going to be down there. This is really weird. I had this vision. All of a sudden, you guys knock on the door. All right, come on in. The next day, verse 24 says, the following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and his close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you guys all know it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Peter's not sure what he's doing. You guys know I'm not really supposed to be here, right? But if we, walk, if we go back a little bit to the beginning of the chapter, according to the vision that Peter had that Luke narrates for us, he sees a sheet with clean and unclean animals on it. It says all kinds of animals, birds and reptiles. There are clean and unclean animals. Get up, kill, and eat. No, God, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Second time, a third time. According to the vision, he sees impure and unclean animals. But now look at what Peter says in the last verse there on the screen. God has shown me I should not call anyone impure or unclean. That's not in the vision, Peter. Where'd you get that from? The vision said not to call any food. But Peter realizes immediately that the reason why the food is unclean is be, the reason why the Gentiles are unclean is because they eat unclean foods. If the foods are clean, then you're clean. And if you're clean, I can enter your home. Verse 29 now is, is, is actually a, a really good little synopsis of the sermon that, uh, of Peter to, the, to, the, to these Gentiles. So when I was sent for, Peter says, I, I came without raising any objection. I'm sure he kind of had some objections. He just might not have said them out loud. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered. Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me, and he said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gift to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now, we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts people from every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message that God has sent to the people of Israel, 
announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And if you're not familiar with the gospel, listen carefully, because here we go. Verse 37. You know what happens at the province of Judea. Beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We're witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then they killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was, not, he was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about, about him and and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, listen carefully. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, circumcised believers means Jews, right? Who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, well, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They, had, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now, we might stop and think, this is great. This is awesome. Gentiles are being welcomed into the fold of Christianity. They, they, they get it. It's, it's great. The ministry of the church can move forward. This is This is awesome. Not so fast. Words of what Peter has done, he's entered into a Gentile's home. Gets back to Jerusalem before Peter gets back to Jerusalem. <clears throat> Acts chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. There's no, hey, we're so glad that you baptized a thousand converts. They criticized him. And starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. And it goes on, I, I, look, I, I was in Joppa and I'm praying and God appears to me and says, eat. I'm like, no way. It happened three times. And then all of a sudden, at the exact moment, there's somebody like knocking at my door. I'm like, oh, I better find out who that is. And God says, go with these people. I'm like, okay, great. I invite them in my home. And then I went with them. And then, I, and then I'm like, I better just go ahead and go to this guy's house. I'm like, I didn't want to do it, but I did it anyways. And then they're like, okay, whatever. And then they're asking me questions. And hey, Peter, you, you can preach just the gospel. Tell us anything you want to tell. I'm like, oh, hey, I got like an open forum to preach the gospel. I'm like, okay. So I preach the gospel. And I told him the story. And before I was even done, I mean, seriously, I had nothing to do with it. I'm, on, I'm, I'm telling you, I didn't, I didn't do an altar call. I, I didn't ask for money. I, I, didn't, I didn't do any. I'm just, I'm just like, I'm just talking. I hadn't even finished preaching. The, I hadn't even, I had, I mean, the best part of my, I hadn't even get that part out. And they're speaking in tongues. And I'm like, oh boy, what are they going to say in Jerusalem? So I said, who's to keep these men from being baptized? My hands are clean. I didn't do anything. If you've got a problem, take it up with a big guy. 
Acts 11, verse 17. That was, that was by the way, my paraphrase of verses 5 through 16, <laughs> in case you were wondering. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And this sounds great, but here's my question. What about all those who missed church that day? What about all the other Jews in Jerusalem that didn't hear Peter's explanation? You see, I want to talk this morning now about a six-letter word. One, two, three, four. Yeah, six-letter word that you're not allowed to talk about in church. It's change. Change is not easy. We all struggle with change. It's hard. I was recently discipling a, a young man, and, and as I was talking to him, and, and, he, and he, 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 he wanted my advice he, and, and all that, and believe it or not, somebody wanted my advice. Um, and he came to me, and, and he says, look, I need to make this decision, and here's what's going on at my job. Uh, his current job's pushing him out. He doesn't have any benefits at his current job. It's, not a good, it's just not a good place for him. And, and they're trying to force him out, and he's got this opportunity maybe for a new job in another city. It happens, so happens, he's got two kids who live nearby that other city. Um, he could go to that other job and, and, and get benefits and be closer to his family. I mean, it, it's really easy to advise somebody on what's, what, what you should do in this particular situation. Right? I mean, the writing's on the wall. You need to move and take this new job. But he was scared. He didn't want to move. He didn't want to change. I remember in 2001... Uh, the Lord was calling my wife and me to, for me to go back and, uh, for my PhD, and I was going to go back to Philadelphia. Well, I, I moved from Boston to California when I was three. My entire life was in, Cal was in Northern California. Uh, my wife, Tony, her entire life was in Northern California. We had three kids at the time. They were born and raised in Northern California. That's all we knew. Um, I had been not only raised up in, in, in that area, but I had been teaching for 15 years, uh, thir 13 years, uh, in, in church, in a school. We knew hundreds and hun thousands of people. We couldn't, and we kind of liked it, we couldn't go to Costco, we couldn't go to the grocery store without running into people that we knew. Whether it was from church or from my work or from Tony's uh, uh, life or from, from my childhood or my school, no matter where we were, I would walk into the movie, this, this, this happened, we walk into the movie theater, Mr. Dalrymple! I'm like, it's dark, I have no clue who you are. I had to figure out from the silhouette and from maybe the sound of their voice who, who it was. And as we kind of watched, oh, oh, hey, how are you? And we couldn't walk in the... And all of a sudden, I get off an airplane in Philadelphia. And I realized, I don't know anyone. And no one here knows me. And I was, my, my family stayed behind for two weeks before even they joined me. It was hard. It was so hard. But I want to encourage you with this. Change is actually what Christianity is all about. The first change that we have to make and that we make as Christians is within. The Greek word repentance, metanoia, means to change one's mind. Meta, it's a, it's a preposition after, change. And noia is the Greek word for mind. To change one's mind. To become a Christian is to make a change. We change our mind from following the ways of the world and the desires of our flesh. To acknowledge that Jesus is Lord is to change our allegiances. It's no longer I who sit on the throne, but Jesus who sits on the throne. 
And we don't stop there. The gospel is about Christ continuously transforming us, constantly being transformed into his likeness. You see, miraculously, the moment that we repented, we didn't simply just become radically transformed to be fully like Jesus the moment we repent. Instead, we're in this lifetime of removing our old self and becoming like him. So my first question is this. Have you repented? Have you changed your mind and surrendered your life to Jesus? And secondly, if so, is he still transforming you? This is a radical step. Now, when we read the book of Acts, and the reason we're bringing this up is because this is what's going on. We could make a list of the things that the church in Acts, the changes that they underwent, and this list is radical, and it would probably have a hundred items on it. Think about it. They can now enter a Gentile's home. And now, as soon as Peter enters a Gentile's home, even though he baptized maybe, who knows, a hundred people, whatever it was, he gets criticized as soon as he gets, goes into Jerusalem. This isn't a small change. This isn't like, hey, Jesus said it's okay, you go. I'm not going, you go. You go first, then I'll go. No, you go. No, I'll go. All right, let's all go in together. Here we go. One, two, three. Oh, we're in a Gentile's home. This is radical. Not only that, but they can eat with the Gentiles. And they can even eat the Gentiles' food, which I betcha that none of them did. Because just think about it. You see, most of us, like, you know, we're raised in a culture that go, bacon, yes. They didn't do that. They thought, bacon, no. So as soon as someone says, you can have pepperoni pizza, they're like, no, I'll go, Jesus, fine. <laughs> the Sabbath is now Sunday. Not Saturday. Oh, that's not a big deal. Yes, it is when grandma, and when your uncles, and when your aunts, and when your cousins, and when your kids, when they still go to, church, go to the Sabbath on Saturday, and you're doing Sunday, and not only that, are you working on Saturday because you're going to take Sunday off? That ain't going to go over well. No more Passover and Pentecost. The holidays have changed. Imagine if someone came in and says, you know what, Christmas is done. It's been fulfilled. We're the new, we're like, uh, I like Christmas. It's fun. Can I have that too? Oh yeah, now we have to add Easter. We're going to read the entire Old Testament in a radically different way. We're going to start adding books to the Bible. People are speaking in tongues. And the list goes on and on and on. The church has this radical transformation and radical change. Now what's interesting here is this. Jesus had told Peter and the disciples, recording the Gospel of Mark, that all foods were clean. The Gentiles, therefore, are okay to go to, but they don't go to them, chapters 1 through 7. Only when a persecution arises do they even begin to go out. And even then, it's in chapter, eight where Peter, uh, chapter 10 where Peter has to have a vision before he'll even go to Cornelius' house. Well, a few years later... Peter is up in, in Antioch, modern-day Syria, up, in, up north in the, in the city of Antioch. Antioch, at this point in time now, maybe about 15 years after the death of Jesus, or maybe about 18, 19 years after the death of Jesus, late 40s A.D., Peter's up in Antioch, and it's now the home of Christianity. Ephesus will soon become the home of Christianity, then maybe later Rome. But right now it's Antioch. It's a cosmopolitan city. It's the second largest city in the entire Roman Empire. Half a million people live in Antioch. So it's a great place to have as the center of Christianity. And Peter's up there. 
and some Jewish Christians from Jerusalem come up into town. And this is what Paul writes in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. He says, later, when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. Here's the situation. Here's the situation. Earlier, before certain persons had come from James, Peter regularly ate with non-Jews. Do I have the right, the right slide up? Yes? Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, earlier, before certain persons had come from James, Peter regularly ate with the non-Jews. But when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that's been pushing the old system of circumcision. NIV says, I confronted him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. It's difficult. It's hard. Peter's struggling with this. He knows that the Gentiles are to be included in the faith, but he feels pressure. So Paul rebukes him. Now, when we talk about change, and I know some of you are nervous right now, like, where is he going with this? Let me, let me calm your nerves. When we talk about change, in all reality, I have more questions than I have answers. But there are some things we cannot change. Cultural relevance might be a tool being relevant to the culture. We saw this a few weeks ago. Peter's sermon in Acts 2 to the Jews in Jerusalem is no way near at all compared to Paul's sermon in Acts 17 to the Greeks in in Athens. Two radically different messages. We have to be relevant to the culture to which we're trying to reach or we can't communicate with them. But the gospel is the goal. Cultural relevance is a tool, but the gospel is the goal. And the gospel doesn't change. We're not talking about changing the gospel. To a culture that denies the existence of God, we say God is one, he's holy, he's eternal, he's all-powerful, he's loving, and he's just. We don't deny that. And we don't back down. To a culture that denies truth, we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. To a culture that denies whether there's right and wrong, and maybe everybody has their own truth for them and their own right and wrong for themselves, we say, look, we're all sinners before God. And we've all failed to live up to what God demands of us. And we urge people of all natures to repent and to turn to God that they might be saved from His wrath. And we have the joy of eternal blessing and being in this family. That we cannot change. And we will not. Because the gospel doesn't change. Now, how we present that, and how we say that, and how we pre- how, uh, that mi- must change as culture changes, as times change. The simple fact is, is that what we do today is not what we did 75 years ago, or 100 years ago, or 400 years ago, or 800 years ago. The church of the, of the book of Acts has almost nothing in common with the church today. Even the Roman Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church that tries to be this tradition, they, they didn't walk around with incense censors like the, like the Pope does, like, like Orthodox priests do. They, they, they just don't. Things are different. Here's what I'm saying. 
I'm not saying anything other than sometimes we need to step out of our comfort zones and be proclaimers of the gospel. Just like Peter had to step out of his comfort zone and proclaim the gospel. Now, I began by saying love and unity are the two key elements of the church. And just like my son and his new wife can display love and unity in the context of marriage, so we also must display love and unity in the context of the church. And love, by its very nature, is that it submits to the needs of the other. That's what love is. It's self-sacrificing. Love says the other is more important. So let me give you what I think are two things that we can do at least right now. And that's this. Number one, create a community where the world, the nature, the, the, the people around us long to be a part of it. We can do that. Create a community where they long to be part of it. And, and I've said uh, uh, numerous times now over the study of, our, of the book of Acts, the one thing we can do is simply let's just let's get to know them. Let's build relationships with them. Let's love on them. We don't have to change anything else right now. We just have to get to embrace them and welcome them. Because the younger generation, they want community. They lack community, and they need it. And then secondly, live our lives differently. So the world's perceptions of Christianity doesn't match who we are. And perhaps as a result of that, they will long for the gospel that we live out. The world has perceptions of what Christianity is all about. There's a book I've mentioned a few times called Unchristian. It was a poll done by David Kinneman and, and, and Gabe Lyons, I think about 2008, 2009. And they surveyed the American culture. What's your perception of Christians? And they titled the book Unchristian because the perception of the secular world out there about Christians is basically that we're not Christians. It came out to be we're hypocritical, we're judgmental, we're legalistic, we're too political, uh, and, and it goes on. And each chapter... Is titled that. One chapter is about hypocritical. One chapter is about being too political. And, uh, and what we can do is we can simply say, hey, what your perceptions of us is simply not true. Because we love you and we care for you. And it's the church's job to show, hey, listen, yeah, I went up to Caesarea and I went into a Gentile's home and I preached the gospel to him. But the Lord told me to do that. And before I was even done preaching, they were speaking in tongues. And so we baptized them. Father, we come to you now this morning. And we recognize the difficulties that we have as a church loving the people who are here and at the same time loving those within our neighborhood. Because we're different. It was so easy, or a lot easier at least in the Old Testament world, when everyone liked the food that I like, and everyone wore the clothes that I wore, and everyone spoke the way that I speak. But when we're different, it's harder. And we've sang so many songs this morning, Lord, about being one, about being unified. And we pray, Father, that we would have that internal unity, and that as a result of that internal unity and love for one another, that the people outside these walls, whether it's in our neighborhood here, around this church, or whether it's in our neighborhoods, around our homes, whether it's around our workplaces, around our schools, whether it's our family members and friends, that they would come in and they would go, whoa, there's something different about these people. As radically different and diverse as they are, they love one another. As radically different and diverse as they are, they care about me. And then as a result, Lord Jesus, the gospel will flourish. Because it's all about you. 
It's all about Jesus Christ and about Jesus Christ, whom we serve. We thank you for this now. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.